Rod Steiger makes a good Napoleon, while looking a little older than the Emperor actually was, he was 46. Christopher Plummer is perhaps a little too flippant as Wellington, and inclined to show emotion, which the great Duke took pains to ensure he never did. A British soldier wondering why people kill each other is totally out of character for the time. It is always easy to find fault in a film such as this, but the majority of my criticisms are minor. In general, the film does give a good impression of the battle, and it is a far better representation than most of the genre. Commercially, it was a flop. It deserved better. Major J.G.H. Corrigan, reviewing the film Waterloo, 2009. 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 20, The Second Decade on Film This episode is a little bit of a departure for Second Decade. For one thing, it's going to be a bit shorter than our usual 45 minutes. My life is quite chaotic at the moment, and this month, April 2017, I've got a number of historical-related gigs back-to-back and thus it's been difficult to research and develop a full episode. I am coming toward the end of what you might call the first season of Second Decade. This is not the final episode of the season, but just to let you know, the podcast will be going on summer hiatus in a couple of weeks. There's still plenty of great historical stuff to come, though, most, both the remainder of this season and for next season. Tonight's episode is not straight history but rather a fun subject that's related to our main squeeze here on Second Decade, the depiction of the 18-teens in movies and on television. This topic has been on my to-do list for a while, but as it is a significant departure from what we've been doing before, I thought it was a good idea to do this as kind of a pause before we get back to the real history. Historians, at least professional ones, will often profess to be more interested in books than movies, Books are, after all, the lifeblood of history. Books are where scholarly debate happens, where new insights into historical events and processes are presented, and they're the chief means of recording historical research. But privately, there's something very satisfying on a visceral level about seeing history actually recreated, even imperfectly. Historical events and people have been a subject of films since the medium of cinema began. There are any number of reasons why filmmakers choose some historical events over others to bring to the screen. In some cases, the events themselves are so dramatic that they would inherently make spectacular movies. The sinking of the Titanic, for example, which has been brought to the screen several times. Most notably in the 1958 film A Night to Remember, based on a history book by Walter Lord, 
and James Cameron's big-budget epic Titanic from 1997. At least for American filmmakers, the Civil War has proven very attractive as a historical subject for film. D.W. Griffith, one of the pioneers of cinema, was virtually obsessed with it. He made several silent Civil War pictures even before the controversial, and very racist, film that he's chiefly known for, the 1915 epic Birth of a Nation. Beyond Griffith, filmmakers John Huston, Edward Zwick, and Kevin Costner have visited the Civil War in cinema. The number of films about World War II, both fictional and historical, seems to grow every year. Basically, history is big box office business, and has been since the silent movie days. The 18-teens are a decade, however, that's not well represented in cinema. There are really only a handful of movies, at least films that anyone's ever heard of, set in the second decade, but they do cover as wide a range of subjects as the decade itself. I certainly don't claim to have seen every film or TV production set in the second decade, or even every major film or production. But I've seen a few, and given that the 18-teens are the period of my own professional historical specialization, when the time period does show up on screen, I tend to pay attention. This episode is going to be a brief and not very systematic look at a few depictions of the second decade on screen. I'm going to say a few words about each selection and its historical basis, nothing tremendously in-depth, and it's a survey after all. But perhaps, as we browse the list of second decade on the silver screen, you'll gain an appreciation of some of the wonderful richness that lies there as a subject for film. Should filmmakers make more movies set in the 18-teens? You can decide that for yourself. So join me now in this journey into the dark, the darkness of the movie theater, and the modern recreated shadows of the world of 200 years ago, the second decade on film. The second decade has a long tradition in the history of cinema. While I have no idea what the very first film was to be made that took place in the 18-teens, it's hard to begin the subject without thinking of Napoleon, both the Emperor of France, one of the main characters of this podcast, if you will, but also the film Napoleon, made in 1927 by French director Abel Gans, still one of the great achievements of early cinema. Napoleon, the movie, not the person, actually does not take place during the second decade. The film focuses on Napoleon Bonaparte's early career, mainly his experiences in the French Revolution and his wars in Italy in the 1790s. However, when Abel Gans set out to make the picture, he intended to do a whole flight of six films dealing with Napoleon's career. Certainly the later films, dealing with Napoleon's downfall and eventual imprisonment on Elba and later St. Helena, would have involved the second decade. Gans never got to make these films. The first one, which became the 1927 epic, was grotesquely expensive, and Gans couldn't raise the funds for the others. However, he did write the script for a 1929 film made in Germany, called Napoleon at St. Helena, directed by Lupu Pick. I haven't seen this film, it's quite rare, but I'd be very curious to see it. Six years later, after films made the transition to sound, another landmark film was made, not just a landmark in the relatively short list of second decade films, but a genuine landmark in the history of cinema. That was the 1935 film Becky Sharp, directed by Robert Mamoulian, distributed in the United States by RKO Radio Pictures. Becky Sharp, which I have seen, owes its place in cinema history not because it's a great film in its own right, 
it isn't, but because it was the first major movie produced in Technicolor. The three-strip Technicolor process, which was to become a staple of Hollywood in the later 1930s, was the big draw to Becky Sharp, which is based on a play, itself based on William Makepeace Thackeray's social novel, Vanity Fair. The story takes place in the years after Napoleon's defeat, when Britain is readjusting to peace. It concerns the title character, Becky Sharp, played by Miriam Hopkins, who is a social climber who will do anything to increase her station in genteel British society. Personally, I found Becky Sharp quite dull, and the Technicolor was, to be honest, still in kind of an experimental phase. But at least the second decade legitimately gets on the scoreboard in the history of film, even if Becky Sharp is itself, well, kind of flat. With Becky Sharp out of the way, I'm going to skip over several decades of film history to land in the late 1970s, with an intriguing little film called The Duelists. This was the first directorial effort of now legendary director Ridley Scott, most famous for Alien, Blade Runner, and more recently, Gladiator and The Martian. The Duelists is the story of two French officers, played by Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine, who become engaged in a duel that stretches on through a number of encounters across decades. It is based on a true story, but heavily fictionalized. The action of the film begins in 1800, but continues into the second decade, including scenes set during Napoleon's retreat from Moscow and in the aftermath of Napoleon's defeat. I'm used to thinking of Harvey Keitel as a Brooklyn-accented tough guy, or perhaps the fast-talking Mr. Wolf in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, so it's kind of hard to accept him in Napoleonic-era uniforms and feathered hats, though he does get to run around with swords and pistols quite a lot in this film. The plot and acting are only so-so, but the costumes and cinematography are pretty good for a 1970s period piece. It's said Scott was inspired by the lavish look of Stanley Kubrick's 1975 masterpiece Barry Lyndon, my favorite Stanley Kubrick film, and The Duelists, though not a perfect movie, is certainly a beautiful one to watch. As you might imagine from his prominence in the history of the second decade, Napoleon, as a character, is a popular one in cinema about the second decade. I already mentioned the 1929 German film Napoleon at St. Helena, which I haven't seen, but I most definitely did see the huge, big-budget epic Waterloo, made in 1970, partially in the Soviet Union, by the USSR's second-most-revered director, Sergei Bondarchuk. The first, of course, is Andrei Tarkovsky. Waterloo was actually Bondarchuk's second foray into the second decade. I'll get to the subject of his mammoth adaptation of War and Peace in a few minutes, and he was definitely a master at logistics, staging real armies of genuine extras, no CGI in 1969, as well as coaxing pretty good performances out of actors in historical roles that could have been pretty flat as written. American actor Rod Steiger, who was a big draw in the late 60s, plays Napoleon. Waterloo, the film, as you can imagine from the title, focuses mostly on Napoleon's Hundred Days period, ending in the big battle in June 1815 that resulted in his final defeat. I wouldn't have thought of Steiger as Napoleon, but he does a pretty good job in this film, though of course he can't quite resist the impulse to chew the scenery a bit. After all, he is playing Napoleon. Even better, I think, is Christopher Plummer as Lord Wellington, the British general who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Plummer, one of my favorite actors, is actually Canadian, but he does an excellent turn as Arthur Wellesley, 
that was Lord Wellington's real name, and his performance is actually pretty understated. The look of the film is magnificent. Even better than the battle scenes, I think, are the scenes of a fancy dress ball that occurs the night before the battle, which is full of beautiful period costumes, soft candlelight, and gilded interiors. This may sound like a movie fabrication, but it's actually true. There was a ball in Brussels the night before the battle, thrown by the Duchess of Richmond, and Lord Wellington was there. The upper crust knew how to party in the second decade. There are historical inaccuracies in Waterloo, many concerning military matters or which officer was or wasn't present, that sort of thing. But the film, on the whole, is pretty good. The quote that opened this episode is, I think, spot on. It's a shame that the picture was a flop. Bondarchuk was a great director, and not much of his work ever reached Western audiences. If you can find it on video, Waterloo is definitely worth a look. A much less edifying look at Napoleon comes from the 2002 miniseries called simply Napoleon that aired on A&E Channel in the United States and various cable channels in Europe. It's pretty obscure now, but at the time it was made, it was a big deal. In fact, the most expensive miniseries ever made in Europe, costing over $40 million. Napoleon apparently tried to cram into one miniseries all the material Abel Gantz wanted to do back in the 20s. It's a biopic, dealing with Napoleon from his rise to power in the 1790s up to his downfall and imprisonment, so only a portion of the show takes place in the second decade, but it is a significant portion. To be honest, I found this show pretty lackluster. Napoleon is played by a French actor, Christian Clavier, with Isabella Rossellini as Josephine, admittedly that's an inspired casting choice, and a very surly-looking John Malkovich as Talleyrand. Napoleon's foreign minister. The script is strictly paint-by-numbers, lurching awkwardly from one chapter of Bonaparte's life to the next, but it's never really animated by giving us a sense of who he was. Part of the problem was Clavier as Napoleon. Evidently, this fellow was mostly known for doing comedy movies in France, and playing the complex personality of Napoleon seems beyond him. Isabella Rossellini is great, but the script doesn't give her much to do other than stand around in lavish period costumes, and occasionally cry. The special effects in Napoleon, the miniseries, are pretty chintzy. CGI was still in its infancy in 2002, but there's no excuse for the terribly stilted soldiers in the battle scenes, or the montages that look like they were done with Final Cut Pro. The animatronic baby that miraculously comes to life on the floor of the palace after Empress Mary Louise's difficult delivery in March 1811 is pretty laughable. Come on, guys, you spent $46 million on this show. Couldn't you do a little better? Actually, my favorite depiction of Napoleon from a movie set in the second decade is not from a drama or historical epic, but from a comedy farce. Woody Allen's Love and Death, made in 1975, is a comic send-up of Russian literature, principally Dostoevsky and Tolstoy's War and Peace. There's a wonderful sequence toward the end of the film, taking place against the backdrop of Napoleon's 1812 Russian campaign, where Boris and Sonia, played by Woody Allen and Diane Keaton, hatch a plan to assassinate Napoleon. They're thwarted by the fact, unbeknownst to them, that Napoleon is employing a look-alike to divert the attention of suspected spies. Both the real Napoleon and the double are played by American actor James Tolkien, who was later most famous for playing Principal Strickland in the Back to the Future film series. You're a slacker, McFly! That guy. 
Tolkien's portrayal of Napoleon isn't intended to be serious or accurate, but at least it's fun, especially a bit where Napoleon is developing a recipe named after himself to compete with Beef Wellington, named after his British rival at Waterloo. We have to talk about War and Peace. It's come up a couple of times in this series already, and as possibly the greatest novel ever written, it's commanded its share of cinematic attention. There have been several movie versions of War and Peace, and I'm going to skip over many of them, most notably the 1956 version with Henry Fonda and Audrey Hepburn. The 1966 version, made in the Soviet Union, was directed by Sergei Bondarchuk, the same director as Waterloo. The picture is pretty amazing. Four parts totaling 431 minutes, the film is so big that it had to be state-financed by the government of the Soviet Union. It's in Russian, but then again it should be. That's the novel's native language, after all. It took a tremendous investment of time for me to get through the 1966 War and Peace, but I did finally finish it all. This was a couple of years ago, and generally I was impressed. The film doesn't deal exclusively with the second decade, as the action begins in 1805, but the climactic sequences center around Napoleon's invasion of Russia and the Battle of Borodino, which I dealt with on this podcast several episodes ago. Bondarchuk had a talent for logistics, as I said in connection with Waterloo. The 1960s was the golden age of epic movie battle scenes, which had to be done on site with real people, unlike today's sloppy armies of computer-animated soldiers, like those horrible battle droids in the Star Wars prequels. In Bondarchuk's War and Peace, Borodino especially comes off as a pretty spectacular and amazing sequence. The rest of the film is passable. The director himself played Pierre Bezhukov, and I think he was totally wrong for the role. Too old, for one thing, and he didn't really capture the lost romantic personality of the character as Tolstoy wrote him. The actress who played Natasha was also disappointing. There's no chemistry between them. But the point of this film wasn't compelling performances or characters. It was prestige specifically the prestige of the Soviet state, proving that the Russians, even under communism, could make the definitive War and Peace movie. There is a more recent version of War and Peace, and this was the miniseries made in 2016 by BBC, in conjunction with A&E, directed by Tom Harper. You could describe this as War and Peace light, as it generally doesn't even try to match the spectacle or gravitas of the Sergei Bondarchuk version but the 2016 miniseries is extremely entertaining and gets my vote for the best second decade film to come out in recent years. The scenes set in the second decade are quite convincing. Costumes are beautiful. You'd better have a good costumer if you're going to take on the 18-teens in film. And the locations where they shot the series were perfect. I especially liked the quaint little cabins in the Russian countryside, very evocative of what the landscape was really like at the time of Napoleon's 1812 invasion. The BBC A&E series gets Pierre Bezhukov right, so right that I think it's the role Paul Dano, a young but very talented actor, was born to play. Natasha was always kind of a flighty teenager, at least in the book, but Lily James does present Natasha's character journey pretty capably. The supporting cast is great, especially Jim Broadbent as Prince Bolkonsky and Brian Cox as General Mikhail Kutuzov. I highly recommend the 2016 version of War and Peace, one of the best depictions of the second decade you'll see on TV or in film, at least for the last few years. 
If I include War and Peace in an analysis of second decade films, I think we probably have to say some words about Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Definitely one of the world's most beloved novels, which has also made it to the screen both big and small numerous times. Unlike War and Peace, though, there is some legitimate question as to exactly which decade Pride and Prejudice takes place in. The novel was first published in 1813, so if it was intended to present England contemporary to its publication, every film version of Pride and Prejudice counts as a second decade movie. However, Austen began writing the novel about 1797, and there are, so far as I recall, no markers in the text that peg it to any specific time. So while researching this article, I did find a Cliff's Notes analysis that clearly states Pride and Prejudice takes place in the early 19th century, not the late 18th. Let's assume for the sake of argument that Pride and Prejudice is intended to take place in at least 1810, and thus is a second decade story. I haven't seen all the Pride and Prejudice movies, just as I haven't seen all the Napoleon movies, but a few stand out. First and foremost is the 1995 BBC miniseries, starring Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Illy as Elizabeth Bennet, which so far as I can tell is generally regarded as the gold standard when it comes to Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Certainly it's the most iconic. The scene where Colin Firth, dressed only in a wet linen early 19th century undershirt, comes up out of the water at a fountain in Pemberley is remembered as one of the most fetching moments in recent British TV history. Pride and Prejudice is, of course, the story of a young, middle-class family, the Bennets, who seek to marry their daughters upwardly in society, preferably to the sons of rich aristocrats, among whom Mr. Darcy and his friend Charles Bingley are the most attractive. If you're a Jane Austen fanboy or fangirl, you don't need me to tell you the plot. You already know it. But this sort of thing, a costume drama of refined manners where the object is marriage, is the stuff that absolutely defines channels like A&E. I find it amazing and gratifying that Pride and Prejudice, the quintessential second-decade novel, has entertained the English-speaking world, and much of the rest of the world, for over 200 years now, and its cult following is sort of the literary equivalent of Trekkies. I admit I haven't seen all of the 1995 BBC show of Pride and Prejudice, but what I did see was very good. The performance of Colin Firth is especially noteworthy. It must be a lot of fun for the location scouts of these sorts of films, touring every stately manor in the English countryside. This particular production chose Lyme Park in Cheshire as the location for Pemberley. Whether or not the novel Pride and Prejudice is intended to take place in the second decade, the 1995 miniseries certainly does. The fashions are consistent to about the period 1811 or 1812, which is usually pretty standard for these Jane Austen movies. The show certainly does look like the world of British aristocracy in the second decade, though, as with all of these romantic depictions, it shies away from showing just how precarious this world really was, economically and socially, and how small it was, compared to the much vaster underclass of England, from whom rich aristocrats, like the owners of Lyme Park, derive their income. Another one of my favorite second decade film depictions is not exactly Pride and Prejudice, but a riff off of it. No, not the zombie one. I'm talking about the 2008 miniseries on Britain's ITV channel called Lost in Austin, directed by Dan Zeff. This is a comedic fantasy, which features a modern British woman, Amanda, played by Jemima Ruper, who finds a magic portal in her bathroom that connects with the literary world of Pride and Prejudice, her favorite novel. 
Amanda switches places with Elizabeth Bennet, who winds up in 21st century London, while Amanda must navigate the world of pride and prejudice. And, of course, everything goes awry, and she falls in love with Mr. Darcy herself, played by Elliot Cohen. Lost in Austin is absolutely charming, very funny, well-acted, and it's a surprisingly lavish and good-looking presentation of the second decade. It does appear to be the second decade. The film references the war with France, and in addition to the same 1811-1812 type fashions of the women and men, one of the characters, the dastardly Wickham, sports a British redcoat uniform that's clearly from the later Napoleonic era. I can forgive that the Jemima Rupert character at one point describes her setting as Georgian England, suggesting that it's before 1811, where she should have said Regency England, but let's not be sticklers for details. Not to spoil too much, but the final scenes of Lost in Austin involve Mr. Darcy suddenly showing up on the streets of 21st century London, in full second decade dress, and it's a delightful fish-out-of-water scenario to see how someone of that time might react to the noise and bustle of our modern world. If you haven't seen Lost in Austin, that's of course A-U-S-T-E-N, you're in for a real treat if you're a fan of this sort of thing. I've saved my favorite second decade film for the end of the show. If you're a horror fan, you may have seen it. Gothic, made in 1986, directed by Ken Russell, which is a loose and inaccurate but very chilling depiction of the Frankenstein origin story. That is, Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Dr. John Polidori, and friends in real life, this is history, rented a house called the Villa Diodati on the shores of Lake Geneva in the summer of 1816, expecting a summer holiday. But the weather was so atrocious, the year without summer caused by the Tambora eruption, that they were forced to stay indoors on many long stormy nights. To divert themselves, they told ghost stories. From the summer 1816 session, Mary Shelley developed the idea that became her novel, Frankenstein. Dr. Polidori wrote The Vampire, and Lord Byron wrote a gloomy poem called Darkness. I'm definitely going to do a second decade episode on all of this, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Anyway, Gothic, the movie, casts all of this as a horror story, and quite a surreal one. There are jars of bloody leeches, weird Turkish dancing girl robots, and laudanum-fueled hallucinations. Percy Shelley famously thinks he sees eyes in the nipples of a woman's breasts, an image that does come from his real-life memoirs of that quote-unquote haunted summer. The film is a weird and pretty corny take on 80s horror, but its moody view of the year without summer is really atmospheric and a lot of fun. There are some significant inaccuracies. Aside from being inspired by real events in Switzerland in the summer of 1816, the film makes no claim to historical accuracy, but it's an excellent film if highly strange and bizarre. You have to overlook some things about Gothic and its setting. For instance, the house where it was filmed, which is called Gad Desden Place in Hertfordshire, England, is obviously decorated in late 19th century Victorian style, not Georgian or Regency style. In some scenes, you can see sheets covering parts of the decor that are period inappropriate. In the billiards room scene particularly, there are some lights that look awfully electric for 1816, they didn't even have gas lights yet. Gabriel Byrne, who plays Lord Byron, is a bit too old for the role. He was 36 at the time the film was made. Byron was still in his 20s. The crazy, poofy, frizzy mid-80s hairstyles, particularly on Miriam Sear, who plays Claire Claremont, will give you a laugh, especially if you remember the era. But if you put the historical nitpicking in check, 
Gothic is a fun film. Weird, but fun. I hope I've given you some food for thought, and maybe a couple of titles to add to your Netflix list. History can and often is serious business, but I'm a firm believer that you can also have a lot of fun with it. That's the spirit of tonight's episode. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. Talk about it on social media. If you're part of a Facebook group, there are many historical Facebook groups, give me a mention. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs like you find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Save big money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money.